This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have you ever been alone before? Just just you and no one else. Maybe you just feel like, hey, it's just me and I don't have anyone else around me. Maybe more specifically, the question should be, have you ever felt alone before? Have you ever felt uh, this feeling that maybe there might be plenty of people around you, but you still feel alone, you still feel isolated, for some reason. There was a recent University of Chicago study that showed that over half of all Americans feel lonely. Over half of all Americans have this sense of feeling disconnected, a lack of real connection with other human beings, something that's creating this feeling of isolation and what we would call loneliness. I suspect that many of us feel alone. And we don't know what to do about it. And we don't even know how to talk about it. So we convince ourselves. We convince ourselves that that we're okay. And we struggle through by ourselves, which ironically only makes us feel lonelier. We'll think, well, maybe if I just had a lot of people around, maybe if I had more friendships, I won't feel so lonely. If we're single, maybe if I just got married, I wouldn't feel so lonely. But neither of those are true. One study showed that that this was a group of psychologists that had actually met with several different patients and they found that 60% of married people are likely to feel loneliness. It's not an automatic thing that just by being married, I will no longer feel lonely. People also assume that, that, that extroverts aren't lonely. Right? The assumption is that the introvert is the one that must shun personal relationships and shun having people around them, and therefore they are the more lonely ones. But really, and what many psychologists have pointed out, is there are many extroverts for whom being around people is a way to insulate the fact, insulate themselves from the fact that they often have a higher frequency of feeling lonely when they're by themselves, which is why they need to have more people around them. We are all struggling with varying levels of loneliness. And ultimately, loneliness does not scale with the number of physical relationships that we have. Loneliness is not something that's alleviated by some formula, right? This formulaic idea that says, if I have X number of relationships, then I will therefore alleviate feelings of loneliness. That's not how loneliness works. It's not about the amount of relationships. It's about how you feel about the value of those relationships. In other words, loneliness is not about uh, physically being alone. Plenty of people have had uh, incredible times of deep happiness when they've spent time alone. They have said physically being alone at times just gives them a way of being recharged. The physicality of being alone is not the issue. Loneliness is, an, is not something that is due to solitude, right? Loneliness is more often a state of mind. 
It's a way of thinking. Things that we think that either may be true and we don't know how to react to it or things that are not true. And so how we think impacts how we feel. How we think impacts what we feel. When you look at uh, this, this actually creates a real deep sense of, of longing because what we think about it affects what we feel and how we feel. Loneliness also has some pretty heavy consequences. Loneliness can have effects on, on our health. Some experts argue that loneliness can have an equal effect on the body as smoking 14 cigarettes a day. Just the impacts that that can have physiologically on our body. Studies show that uh, loneliness can increase likelihood of high blood pressure, getting the flu, uh, inflammation, Alzheimer's, some forms of cancer, rheumatoid, arthritis, and even cardiovascular disease. One study uh, showed that loneliness kills nearly twice as many people as obesity does. These are heavy things. Some people feel so isolated from others that they, are, they feel that the only way to, to, to deal with and end the pain that they feel is to just end their lives. Loneliness can carry grave consequences. It's real. It can be catastrophic. And our text today shows us how Jesus promises to help us battle loneliness, to help us overcome loneliness, to help us persevere, even in the midst of feeling lonely. So in our text today, in John 14, verses 18 through 31, we're going to look at how Jesus equips us to deal with feelings of loneliness, how Jesus shows us, proves to us that when we are in him, when we are united with him, we are never alone. Let's read together. John 14, verses 18 through 31. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. And the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, on the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me. Get up, 
Let's leave this place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Listen, the mood of today's passage and really what we've been uh, reading over the last uh, several weeks, the mood here is extremely sad. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. Jesus is getting ready to leave his friends. This particular scripture is part of the long dialogue that Jesus had been having with his disciples as he prepared for his death, as he prepared for his resurrection, as he prepared for his ascension. So the sermons over the last few weeks, we've seen that the followers of Jesus are beginning to deal with separation anxiety. Again, when you have close relationships with, with in, in which you feel real safety, in which you feel real comfort, in which you feel real guidance, when the threat of that relationship appears, when there's this, this high chance that that relationship can be taken away from you, you start struggling with separation anxiety. I'm anxious about being separated from the one who has brought me great comfort. That can be any form of a relationship. So they're not feeling anything that we wouldn't be feeling. The man that they gave up everything to follow is getting ready to leave them. And even more specifically is getting ready to be taken from them. They don't really understand what's gonna happen to Jesus. They don't even understand what's gonna happen to them. They didn't know really where they were gonna have to end up going. Many of the disciples, they left their homes. Some of them left their wives. They left their families. They left their livelihoods to follow Jesus. They no longer had sources of income. They were far away from the security and the comfort of home. Listen, when we're about to lose something that is valued or when we're getting ready to lose someone who is close or, or, or someplace familiar, we, we worry. We become disagreeable. We, we begin to feel uh, depressed. And this is only human. This is the nature of our condition. And Jesus knows that. I'm sure the disciples were feeling all of these things. Some kept to themselves as more like an introvert. And some others, like Thomas, questioned openly, questioned and questioned. The mood around Jesus and the disciples, it must have been pretty despondent feeling alone, the relationship that brought them comfort is ending. They feel alone. They feel untethered. They feel unsafe. There was a well-known spiritual that was sung, sung by, uh, by black slaves. And it went, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home, a long way from home. Ultimately, when we feel completely distressed, completely unprotected, in many ways we feel untethered from those that are supposed to protect us. In many ways we feel the way a person who has no parents would feel. We feel like, you know, in general, in, in, in theory, parents are supposed to be the ultimate kind of last place of protection. When all else fails, we can always go home. People who have parents who are actively involved in their lives, people who have parents who are there for them, who protect them, who are there whenever they fall into hard times, there's a level of confidence with which you can operate and navigate through your life. 
people who come from families who can help them financially. They're more likely to take more risks in life because they know there's a cushion upon which they can fall if things don't work out. When they know that, when you know that you don't have that kind of a cushion upon which to fall, that brings a higher level of anxiety. That brings a higher level of nervousness. That brings a higher level of, of, of an awareness that, man, the consequences, if it doesn't work out for me, are gonna be far greater than if I had a mom and dad that could help cushion and protect and, and, and make that fall a little lighter. Ultimately, what we're saying is when we feel despondent, we feel like we have no parents. We feel motherless, we feel fatherless, we feel alone and we feel distressed. Feeling lonely makes us feel unprotected. Feeling lonely makes us feel unwanted, makes us feel unloved like an orphan. You see, when you think about what Jesus says, Jesus knows that our distress makes us feel untethered, makes us feel unloved, makes us feel uncovered, makes us feel unprotected. That's why he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Why did he have to say that? Because he knows our nature. He knows what we're prone to do. The moment I feel unsafe, I feel like I feel motherless and fatherless. I feel like there's no one that's going to protect me. And what am I prone to do when I feel like no one else will protect me? I'll do whatever I have to do by any means necessary to protect myself. And that's what sin starts to look like. Because now I'm rooted in some things that's, that's rooted in, in self-protection, right? And so the moment I'm, I'm focused on self-protection first, some of it might be right, some of it might be wrong, but I'm doing whatever feels safest for me. See, Jesus knows that there's grave consequences even with taking that approach, which is why he says, I will not leave you as orphans. This word orphan, it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in James when James talks about caring for widows and orphans in their time of distress. In that passage in James, uh, simply James, the brother of Jesus, is, is hearkening back to Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, when God had always called his people to care for widows and orphans. Why? Because this represents people groups that are never cared for by society. As a matter of fact, in the Greco-Roman world, there were not any provisions made to care for orphans. To be an orphan in the time of Jesus and long before, to be an orphan meant to be someone that, uh, uh, who is easily uh, disenfranchised, someone that can easily be taken advantage of, someone who can easily be abused, someone who can easily be robbed without any legal protection. Jesus knows that in that culture, using that word is going to hit deep. What we know historically is that in the Roman world, it would be another 400 years before they would ever create the first orphanages. I think they were called orphanotrophiums. And these, these were the first places where in the Roman world, they would start to say, we need to create some protections for this unprotected group of folks. But before that, there was no thought of that. To be an orphan was to be someone who wasn't cared for. So Jesus is making this point. He's driving it home. He's saying, I know that you're distressed. I know that you're despondent. I know that you're concerned. I know that you're uncertain. I know that you feel like there's no one there to protect you. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like the conditions of my life, the circumstances of my life, 
And maybe not even just your individual life. Maybe you look at the times we live in right now and you say, I see that there's a large numbers of people that don't seem to care about other numbers of people and my hope in humanity is low and I'm just not quite sure if I can trust. I don't even know if I wanna live in this world the way that it is because it just feels so overwhelming and people are heartless and you might see all of that. And some of that might even be true, but the question is, does it take you to a place where you feel like an orphan? Because if I'm honest, there are times when I feel like an orphan. There are times where I feel like I'm not quite sure, Lord, where you are right now. If I'm just being honest in my heart of hearts, there are times where what my eyes show me, what my ears take in, what I'm feeling makes me feel like a motherless child. We have to be honest with that. It's only when we're honest about our loneliness that we can look to Jesus to solve it. Otherwise, we start trying to solve it on our own. Jesus knows that this is something that we're going to feel. And he's, he's letting the disciples in the room, he's letting his disciples know that very day. He's letting the disciples of today, all of us, he's letting us know that no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, no matter what we hear, no matter what we experience, no matter what, we are not alone. We are not alone. And sometimes we need to know it before we feel it. Every time we need to know it before we feel it. Listen, you may not even always feel it. There's something about being, uh, being reminded, and we'll talk about that in a minute, being reminded that even though it looks like I'm alone, and in spite of the fact that it feels like I'm alone, I need to know that I am not alone. This very day in the midst of a global pandemic, where there are many people asking, God, where are you? People have lost loved ones. God, where are you? Even in this day when we have so much of the racial inequity that's uh, proliferated all throughout the news cycle, it, every day we see another situation where people are dealing with horrific, uh, negative, disproportionate impacts because of race or because of class or because of gender or what have you. We're seeing that over and over again, and it can be easily, the question can easily be formed, Lord, where are you? God, where are you? It feels like we're alone. We need something else to remind us. We need something else to give us comfort. The same way these disciples needed something to give them comfort, they needed to know that they weren't alone. They needed something not only to tell them that they weren't alone, they needed something to make them feel truly like they are loved, like they are tethered, like they are cared for, like they are parented well. And when you look at the way that Jesus uh, moves through this text, you see not only the fact that he's saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He tells us how he effectively removes that feeling of, of, of orphanhood. He, he's, he's showing us ways in which we can cling to something that will be a, a weapon we can use to battle against that kind of loneliness. And so he says, the one who loves me, will be loved by my father. I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Jesus up to this point had been talking all about his connection to the father. It's caused incredible questions. It's caused all kinds of quandaries for many of the folks who had listened because they had never heard anybody equate themselves with God the father. It was blasphemy to the Pharisees. It was, it was questionable, but they couldn't understand it completely. How can he say that he's one with God unless he is God? 
How could he do that? And he, he says, so up to this point, he's been bringing up just the connection between him and the father and how that should give us a sense of comfort. But he's getting ready to complete this kind of cycle with not just talking about him, not just talking about the father, but talking about what he brought up in verse 16, this promised comforter, the Holy Spirit, that will come to bring us comfort, that will come so that our hearts won't be troubled, that will come so that we do not feel like orphans. So he talks about revealing all of this to us. And then Judas, which I love, John is the king. We've talked about this before. John is the king of parenthetical statements. So he's like, Judas, by the way, not that traitor, uh, uh, Iscariot. Judas said to him, Lord, by the way, this is Judas, likely the author of Jude that we see uh, toward the end of the, uh, of the Bible. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Judas is still, again, they don't quite understand the scope of this thing. But they know that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm doing this for you. He said it earlier. I'm doing this for those who love me. I'm doing this for those that are called. He's, he's talking about those that follow him. And Judas is like, I, I don't get it. How are you going to reveal yourself to us, but not the world? Is this some kind of secret smoke bomb ninja thing? I don't know if they had ninjas back then, but is there some kind of clandestine operation that's happening? Are you going to surreptitiously kind of show yourself to us under cover of night so that no one else can see? I don't get it. I don't understand. How is it possible? And the way Jesus answers on the surface, it looks like he never answers this question, but I think there's a way to understand this. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him. We will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it's from the father who sent me. In many ways, we have, we've had to walk through this dance, this delicate dance between the father's eternal will and his sovereignty and men and women's uh, uh, sense of free will and responsibility for their own decisions, right? And we've said it over and over again, it is so hard to know where one begins and where one ends, but we know that they are united. We know that they kiss. We don't know where, but we know it happens. Here, we're seeing a sense in which our own personal responsibility is being highlighted. Jesus is looking at Judas's question. He's hearing Judas's question and Judas is saying again, okay, how are you gonna reveal yourself to us and not other folks? And Jesus is basically pointing out, I'm going to reveal myself to anyone who actually loves me. And anyone who loves me, the father will love them. And in turn, we, the father and the son, will come to them, will be upon them, will make our home with them. So on one level, now it's interesting because earlier before, Jesus has made, made, it, made it very clear that only the ones who have been brought to him are, are enabled to be brought to him because God has moved on their hearts too. So we know that there's this, this dual duality here. Again, we don't know where one starts and ends, but we know that there is this unique, mysterious way in which God's sovereignty and what he does with our heart to enable us to respond. And at the same time, this responsibility we have to respond. Jesus says, the ones who love me, those are the ones my father loves. And those are the ones that I and my father will dwell with. And the one who doesn't love me, and how do we know, by the way? How do we know? Jesus is saying, here's how you'll know the ones that love me. They will keep my commandments. They will keep my words. Now, this is a very important place to maybe park for a moment. Because many times when we read this passage, we think of the words of Jesus as all of the words of the Bible as we have it now. 
And I think we need to be careful. This doesn't mean that all of the Bible is not authoritative and important at all. We believe that here. But I think we have to be very careful with the way we understand what Jesus is talking about here. Because you see, a lot of what we have in the Old Testament now was not collated the way that it is now. People didn't have access to all of these. And in some places, they had access to even other books. So we got to be really careful here. Because, and why do we have to say that? Because there are many times where people will use maybe Old Testament passages or Old Testament commandments that often are used out of context. And they'll use those in, in some ways as almost like a weaponized vice grip to control people or to exclude people and at the exclusion of Jesus's greatest commandment, right? When he said that all of the commandments are wrapped up in what? Loving the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? He said all of the law is wrapped up there. So that's Jesus's commandment, right? He says that's the greatest commandment. And then later we talked about how Jesus uh, in many ways takes that commandment and beefs it up on steroids and says, yes, you know that commandment, but I'm saying to you now, love others the way I have loved you. We call that the platinum rule. These are Jesus's words. We have to be super careful because many times when we take other passages of scripture and we, and we take those scriptures and we make our own doctrines out of those while ignoring the words of Jesus, we are creating something that is not God's heart. We are never to weaponize one area of scripture in order to ignore another area of scripture because the letter of the law needs to be married to the very spirit of the law. In other words, the words of God need to be married to the heart of God. And there is no better place to see the heart of God than in the very full representation of God, his son, Jesus. So the words of Jesus, the commandments of Jesus, that should be our guiding rubric for everything. So when you're confused about other places in scripture that seem to be maybe exclusive, or you might see things like, man, I'm not sure that this is re uh, representing God's heart here. This is where context is important. This is where maybe understanding some local issues that were happening. We see this as, as the case when we read through Paul. Paul can be really difficult to understand at times because there are things that Paul might say that Paul might specifically and very subjectively be uh, uh, highlighting for a specific group of people. Maybe not to be taken universally, but to be handled specifically for a group of people because of their unique challenges. But many times people will use Paul as a way to almost be weaponized so that we can ignore Jesus. And that should never be the case. Everything that's said should be understood in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said. And everything else should remain kind of in subjection to the words and to the heart and to the life of Jesus. That's the way we need to be understanding this. And so when Jesus says this, this is what he's getting at. He's saying that uh, those who love me and those who keep my words, those who keep my commandments, those who love God and love others well, those who love others the way God has loved them, those are the ones that clearly love me. And that's where God makes his dwelling. Those are the ones with whom he makes his home. And he says, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you these things and remind you of everything that I've told you. You know, I want to go back before that when he, when he also says uh, earlier, when he talks about uh, how I think earlier in the ver first few verses of this text, when he says, uh, in a little while, the, wor the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. 
On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. This is interesting because ultimately, the disciples still don't know what's going to happen. They've been promised this idea of a Holy Spirit. It's, it's not language they normally would use. They may use things like Spirit of God, but they wouldn't really understand the Holy Spirit is something that dwells within them. They have some big stories about their prophets, leaders, judges, kings, over whom the Holy Spirit rested, right? They knew those stories. But this idea of believers having this indwelling of God's spirit in them as this paraclete, this alongside helper, this advocate, this language that we use is like a lawyer come along, uh, coming alongside to advocate when we don't have the words to advocate for ourselves. That's not something they understood. That's not something that they, so they didn't quite get it. When Jesus said, I'm, I'm sending you a comforter, when he said it earlier, they didn't quite understand that. And Jesus knows that they don't understand that. And they won't understand that until the Holy Spirit dwells within them. That's why he says, hey, the world's not going to see me in a little bit. I'm going to be gone, but you're going to see me. And because I live, you will live also. That's him hinting at this resurrection that's coming as well. They still don't get that, though. That's why he says, on that day, you will know that I am in my father because they still don't truly know it now. On that day, that's when they're going to know. Why? Because when Jesus resurrects, that's when they're finally going to start. I'm starting to get it. The only way that he could truly conquer death is for him to actually be united with the one who has all control over death. And so Jesus is realizing he loves them in the moment. We've said this over and over again. Jesus loves you where you are. If you're in a place of, of limited faith, Jesus loves you where you are. Jesus promises to take us to a place where our faith will be enlarged. When we love him, when we trust him, even in the things that we're not sure about, he, tr he loves us enough to say, I love you where you are. And as we say often, I love you too much to leave you that way. I'm going to take you with me to a place where your faith becomes enlarged. And that's what he did with them. And so when he says, you don't know right now, you don't get it right now. But when that day comes, then you'll know that I am in the father and the father is in me. And he repeats, the one who keeps my commands is the one who loves me. And then he says, and the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will also love him and reveal myself to him. Again, there's this, this picture again of this, this feeling that Jesus wants us to understand this unity, this piece of unity that, that we often miss. He's like, I'm one with the father. I'm in the father and the father is in me. Then when he, when, he works, when he works forward, he says, like we said before, he says, I've, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, right? Because he's going to be gone soon. But the comforter, going back again, that Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, which we talked about last week, the Father's going to send in my name. What does that mean again? The Father's going to send that in the same spirit, with the same authority, with the same will, with the same uh, uh, purpose that Jesus had. And that Holy Spirit is going to come in the power and in the authority and in the purpose of Jesus. And what is his role? To teach us all things and remind us of everything that Jesus has taught us. That's powerful. Because what that means, listen, if you grew up uh, in, in, I think all of us, depending on what our backgrounds are, understanding the role of the Holy Spirit, it varies across denominations. It varies culturally. It varies based on our experiences. And so I don't want to besmirch kind of anybody else's background. But what we can truly say is that according to Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit is to 
teach us and remind us. Why do we need that? Because much of our distress, our emotional distress now, right? Much of our emotional distress is rooted in either us believing the wrong things, and so we think the wrong things, which means we feel the wrong things, and then we wallow and drown in the reaction to those wrong things, which means we need proper teaching. So understand the Holy Spirit is not just something that comes and commingles with your emotions so that your emotions can feel validated. That's not the Holy Spirit's role. This is why oftentimes when people are like, you know, when I prayed about it and I just, I feel a peace about it. That is not ultimately uh, and primarily the Spirit's role. His role is not to give you, to make you feel emotionally more peaceful about what you already thought or what you already felt. The, the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring solid teaching that in some ways should unnerve you. If there is something I'm believing that's wrong, the Holy Spirit should be able to come in and go, by the way, here's the truth of who God is. Here's the truth of his nature. Here's the truth of what he's called us to do. And what you're feeling is not in line with that. See, if the Holy Spirit is really dwelling in us, there are things that we feel that probably should change based on truth. In other cases, there are things that we know are true, but because of our circumstances, we forget them or we voluntarily overlook them and ignore them. <clears throat> and so in ignoring them, we begin to still cling to things that are not true, that we probably should know better, but in the moment we don't. I've been there. And so we start to ignore things that we know are true or ignore things that we knew were true before. But because of our situation, we engage in something else and we feel distressed, and we feel despondent. And so we respond while ignoring the very truth that should be bringing us comfort. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Comes and reminds, hey, by the way, the very thing that you're holding to right now, in the midst of your distress, in the midst of your hiding, in the midst of your pretending, this is actually what God says, and you know this, and so he's lovingly and sometimes very strongly and ardently coming in to, to remind us and say, hey, the one who created you and recreated you to look like him, this actually grieves his spirit. And even not just this grieves his spirit, this is not his best for you. And the Holy Spirit reminds us this is not his best for you. You see, ultimately, there's a great comfort in knowing that some of the things that we're holding to or thinking, to have someone who loves, parents do this. There's a kid who's holding to something that just isn't true. They heard something at school and kids said something to, to another kid, to your child, or maybe to you when you were a kid, and, and you started to, 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 to really internalize those things. And then over time, you begin to embody those things. And you needed somebody to come into your life and say, this is not you. This is not who you are. This is not what you were created for. Don't believe these other people's estimation of you. This is God's estimation of you. And this is how far God went to rescue you, to give you an even higher estimation of you than you have of yourself. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches and reminds. So many times when people are like, well, I'm just walking in the spirit. You cannot walk in the spirit and walk in untruth at the same time. It doesn't work because the Holy Spirit, we saw it earlier. He is the source of all truth. He leads us into all truth. He teaches all truth and he reminds us of all truth. Now, please understand and let me make this really, really clear because sometimes these points can be made and then there's a very unhealthy 
dare I say, unholy leap that we make with this truth when we talk about mental health. We're, listen, when we're talking about the emotional distress piece and the spiritual distress piece, that's solely rooted in just what we think, what we believe, what we don't believe. That is separate from clinical depression. So please hear me and don't confuse this. Many times the church, the church has had a horrible record on mental health. The church has had a horrible record on understanding clinical depression. Maybe you right now still have these mind, this mindset in your mind that says, well, I don't, need, you know, I don't need to get any other help. I've got Jesus. I've got the scripture. I've got the spirit. I don't need anything else. Y'all, the science is just really clear. That's not satisfactory. That is not a good estimation of the effect that the fall has had on our bodies and on our minds. In other words, that's a weak understanding of how sin has affected all of the world. It's a weak understanding of what, uh, of what really needs to be redeemed in our body and in our minds and in our souls. And so we need to understand if there are folks, if you are someone that actually needs maybe additional help because of effects with our biochemistry, because of serotonin levels, because of any number of issues that can affect the, the brain, then by all means, we need all the help that we can get. The same way that you could be born with a congenital heart defect and you're gonna need to see maybe a cardiac surgeon to help uh, fix those situations and assuage the pain and the discomfort that's there. We need the same thing for the mind, for the brain. That's not a question. So please don't have this very, in my opinion, unloving position that says that those who might need medicine or might need additional help or need therapy must not have enough of Jesus. That is false. And you may even be in a sense of prideful sin if you hold that position or if you espouse that position. But what we're talking about here is simply not even talking about the clinical depression. That's a whole different setup. We're talking about real emotional distress because of what we see, because of what we hear, and what we cling to in order to bring real peace to our souls. If we're clinging to things that aren't true, we are certainly going to find ourselves depressed because it's not true. Only the things that are true can stand. Only the things that are true can sustain us. Only the things that are true can deliver us. And so the Holy Spirit promises to bring that in. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has already basically given this, this uh, approach of explaining the entire nature of God and how that brings us comfort. What do I mean by the nature of God? Well, Jesus has already shown that he is equal to the Father. So there is this co-equality between the Father and the Son. We also see this equality uh, in how God uh, shares himself through the Holy Spirit when the Son leaves. So on some level, super hard to, to, to get and grasp, that on some level there are these three distinct personalities with three distinct purposes, three distinct wills. We know that because at one point Jesus says, uh, you know, if it's, but we're going to see it later. If it's possible for this cup to be removed from me, let it be, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So we know that there's some distinct wills and differences there, right? Somehow we see three persons completely united, this kind of tri-unity. Theologians didn't know how to describe this or come up with this, so they created a word. It's not in the Bible, but they created a word to describe what that must look like, a tri-unity, trinity. That's where we get that language from. But ultimately, even if we don't use that word, there is 
this kind of threefold unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the best way to think about that? The Father's eternal decree is the one that all things remain in subjection to. Any other thought, feeling, decree, will, that all remains in subjection to the will of the Father. So the Father's decree reigns supreme. The Father reigns. The Father reigns. What does the Son do? Well, the Son then reveals the Father to us. He's used this language multiple times. I am revealing the Father to you. I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. I'm revealing him to you. So if you love me, you are loving the Father and the Father loves you. There's a union there. So the Father reigns, the Son reveals, and then upon revealing, he redeems us back to the Father. So the Father reigns, the Son reveals, the Son redeems. He buys us back with his blood completely reconciles us back to the Father from whom we were estranged because of our sinful condition, because of the ways that we're prone to hide and pretend, because of the ways that we try to fix our loneliness in the same way that Adam fixed his fig leaf when he realized his true state, his sinful nature. The Father reigns, the Son reveals and redeems. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit teaches and reminds. This is how the Godhead in his fullness, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit brings real comfort to us. We need to understand this threefold unity because this is how God expresses himself. This is how he reveals himself. This is how he brings real comfort. And this is how after Jesus gives this quick treatise on the very Godhead, the very nature of God, he then says, Peace I leave with you. It's interesting that in the beginning of this text, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And then he bookends it with peace I leave with you. So I'm not leaving you in the state of being uh, distressed without uh, real help. I'm not leaving you in the state of being comfortless. I'm not leaving you in the state of not having a parent. But instead, I'm not just leaving you in the state of something. I'm leaving you in possession of something. I'm leaving you with real peace. We understand peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not the absence of stressful situations. Many times that's what we think. Sometimes we've been taught a really false understanding of the gospel. And that is, if I have Jesus, I won't have stress. There's a good phrase, a real old school phrase we used to say in my church. I'm too blessed to be stressed. That is too cute and too wrong. You can absolutely be distressed. The issue, though, is does that distress lead us to a sense of hopelessness? Does that distress lead us to a place where we feel unloved, untethered, unprotected, unparented? That's the real thing. Listen, Jesus is talking to a bunch of disciples that in the next few years, many of them are going to be martyred. Many of them are going to be killed. So, For many of us, we would say that's real distress. For many of us, us, we would say, wait, Jesus, I thought you promised that we would not have to be troubled. You told us to not let our hearts be troubled. Imminent death is pretty troubling. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. Jesus wasn't talking about this promise of of this kind of, this peace that he promises is not something that, that insulates us from trials, travails, tribulations, real pain. He doesn't promise that. 
I would love that. Listen, if I were God, that's the way I would do it because my own, because that's where my own heart goes. I want freedom from pain. I want freedom from distress. But on this side of eternity, that's not what the peaceful promise is. This peaceful promise, this peace that Jesus leaves with us, this is, I'm going to give you, the, because the Holy Spirit is going to teach you and remind you, you will have this peaceful resolve with which you can face distressful situations, no matter where you are, no matter what time period you're in, no matter who the president is, no matter who the king is, no matter whether you are in a place where you are being persecuted, wherever you are, I'm going to give you a peace that the scriptures later call a peace that surpasses understanding. He says, I'm giving you a peace that the world doesn't give. Why? Because everything that peace, that's peaceful in the world is something we can just wrap our brains around. Okay, that makes sense. Something was causing problems, we remove the problem. Peaceful, that's the way we think in the world. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna give you a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace the world can't give, a peace that says, even in the midst of sure trouble, I am parented, I am not alone. If I'm facing death, what things am I feeling? Well, if I'm facing death, I have to respond in my mind. And in my mind, I'm going, death, oh my goodness, I'm going to be separated from the ones that I love. That is distressful. If I, if I die, maybe there's doubts that I have about, is there an afterlife? What's going to happen afterward? If I don't really have a really good answer to that, then I'm going to emotionally respond to that as well, right? Oh my goodness, I'm, I might end up going before someone that could harm me, that could hurt me. What's going to happen then? And what Jesus promises is there's a peace, a deep resolve, a deep clinging to the things that are true so that you can still face sure, uncertain, and distressful times and still hold on to the fact that I know in whom I am loved or by whom I am loved. I know in whom I reside. I know the one who has made their dwelling with me. I know the one who has faced death before me. I know the one who has conquered death on my behalf. I know the one who promises that death won't be the final answer. That's a piece that doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus promises. He says, I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You've heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming to you. But if you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. Again, we see a distinction here between the Father and the Son. Yes, they're equal, but we understand that the Father's will takes priority over all things. The Father's decree takes priority over all things. Jesus is showing that while they are equal in essence and equal in nature, there's a difference in will. There's a difference in priority. And it is in all of our best interests that we understand it this way because Jesus is even modeling for us. We are to do and to seek the will of our Father. And everything that Jesus says is reflective of what the Father's heart is. Why? because he reveals and he redeems. And so he says, I've told you now before it happens. So then when it does happen, you may believe. Again, why does he have to do that? Jesus is just, he realizes that we are all from the show me state. <laughs> he realizes that we're not gonna truly believe until we see it actually happen. He's been saying, listen, I'm gonna conquer death. I'm gonna, this, this temple's gonna be rebuilt again. He's talking about his body. He said it earlier. They're gonna tear this down. I'm gonna be back in three days. They still don't quite get it. Jesus says, I have to die. Peter's like, no, may it not be so. And he's, you know, being that impetuous kind of guy. And, and, and ultimately, Jesus is making it clear. You guys don't understand right now, but you will. And when you see my resurrected body, then you'll know. And not only that, yes, they'll see the resurrected body and still have some issues of maybe not being as bold. 
But faith in that resurrection, trusting in that resurrection, leads to the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in, and that's where their comfort is. We see that in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit finally comes, there's a boldness. Peter didn't want to speak out on behalf of his Savior when Jesus was dying. But on the day of Pentecost, he was ready to speak out in front of everybody and preach a complete sermon, the first sermon of the church, where he begins to explain and elucidate all the ways that Jesus was truly the Son of God, boldly knowing what will probably come his way. History and tradition tells us that Peter eventually would be crucified upside down by his request because he didn't think he was worthy of being crucified in the same manner of his Savior. That is an incredible piece that I can't even understand. But this is what real peace looks like. So he said, I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I won't talk to you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no power over me. I wish I had more time to go there because I really feel like there's something really quickly we need to understand that he's talking about Satan here. Be very careful about how much power we give to Satan. Many times we look at Satan as the equal and opposite force of God, and he is not. He is a created being as well. There is nothing that Satan can do without permission, without the power of God even allowing it. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is like, enemy's coming. Here's what's getting ready to happen. He has no power over me. Nothing happens unless I lay it down for him, but I'm willingly and voluntarily laying my life down in order to show my love for the Father, in order for everyone else to be able to see this is what it means to subject your will to the will of the Father for his glory. I love the Father. And I do as the father commanded me. Now, after all of this, I just think it's really interesting how Jesus models this and goes at the end of this, lo- this crazy discourse, he looks at all of them and goes, get up, let's leave this place. What were they even thinking during that time? Jesus just gave some bombs, some theological bombs, some emotional bombs. Hey, I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to leave. I'm sending you something you don't understand, but you will get it eventually. Don't worry. Don't be troubled. Let's go. The enemy's coming. Those are hard marching orders. And they didn't have the luxury that we have now. But if you're a believer right now, then the Holy Spirit does dwell in you. And yes, there are times where uh, his voice might not sound loud. And there are times where maybe you're not holding to the things that are true. And maybe there are times where you might even be pushing against the things that are true because it feels more comfortable and it feels more familiar to hold on to the things that are not true. Sometimes lies can be really, really comforting and the truth can be discomforting. But ultimately, it's the truth that brings real peace. That's the peace that's promised. And so when Jesus uh, is giving these, this this is his parting words. These are his, as we said before, his last will and testament. Ultimately, Jesus is answering the question that we need to be asking ourselves. What do I do when I feel lonely? What do I do when I feel like an orphan? What do I do when I feel like a motherless child? One of the things that I love about the faith and the strength that you saw throughout American slavery is somehow you saw many of these uh, folks of African descent, many of my own ancestors working in these fields, not being paid, not being cared for, treated like chattel uh, property, treated like animals, horribly brutalized, treated like not even human. And somehow 
with the very same Bible that folks were using as a justification to enslave them, they were, I would argue they were able to actually see the fullness of the gospel in ways that their white slave masters did not. And they were able to see a God that promises liberation, a God that promises peace. Somehow they were able to have a resolve while being beaten, while being overlooked, while being uh, made to feel like they are not even worthy of human existence. And they were able to say, I still trust in the God that's getting ready to rescue me. I still trust that even if I don't see peace now, I know that peace is coming. Yes, they were able to lament and say, sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home. You know what those words don't say? Always, I feel like a motherless child a long way from home. In many ways, they were teaching us what it means to be truthful about what we're feeling, but still to cling to what is true. And so when they say, when they talk about that one day, right, that great morning, what it means to get to the other side, you have language like that over and over again. If you struggle with, being, with knowing what it means to have peace in the midst of real distress, look back to some of the greatest theologians we've ever had, the very slaves that trusted in God in ways that we probably wouldn't. This is what Jesus shows us here. This peace that we cling to, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who promises to hold us, who promises never to leave us feeling like orphans. If you are in Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you are never an orphan, you are never alone. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this promise. And God, if we're honest, we don't always even believe this, that anytime that we are struggling with our faith, anytime that we are struggling to obey your commands, anytime we are struggling to believe your word, God, we know that there's a, a degree to which we are afraid. There's a degree to which we feel lonely. There's a degree to which we feel untethered. And Lord, when we feel untethered, we start clinging for other things to tether ourselves to. And in that clinging, we begin to run away from you. We run away from the things that would really bring us peace. And we inevitably find ourselves in a place of distress. God, I, I thank you that your, your spirit continues to pursue us, continues to remind us, continues to teach us. Father, with all of the different folks that are listening, everyone under the sound of my voice, I pray that you would meet them where they are whatever level of distress that they're in, whatever level of uncertainty that we may be in, any places where we need teaching to undo the false things that we, that we believe or where we need reminding to push out the things that we probably know better but are clinging to something uh, in the midst of that. Father, we, more than anything else, we see the fact that you left us with your spirit proves that what we need among anything else is your spirit. Before we need another platform, before we need another political party, before we need a different president, before we need a, a different movement, Father, we need your spirit. Not to, uh, not to justify the feelings we already have, but to replace and supplant and empower and enlarge the very peace that you promise the peace that you offered when you lived, when you died, when you resurrected, and when you ascended. Father, let us cling to that peace so that we never feel alone, so that we never feel like an orphan. We know that you are our Father, and you love us, and you save us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final blessing, this benediction of God now. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people, wherever you sit or stand, said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.